in a row that Jude's had to read some PG-13 scriptures. <laughs> so I wish I would have sat out there to see her face. So this is uh, you know, part of our series, Yikes, but really, um, this one doesn't make me say yikes as much as it makes me want to cry out to God, really? Really, God? As if, as humans, you and I weren't perfectly capable on our own just to mess things up. You have to send down some divine beings, maybe some angels. Uh, to get involved in our sinfulness. I mean, really, isn't Joe perfectly beautiful and, and, and crazy enough to sin on his own, right? I mean, that's all, everybody on the count of three, that's all point to Joe. One, two, three. There we go, all right. But no, God has to get involved and, and send these, whatever they are, down and, and kind of take further this fallen humanity. And uh, it is a weird and strange and somewhat creepy passage for, for multiple reasons. It's so um, bizarre that most preachers don't deal with it at all. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever heard this passage read here or wherever you've been in, at church. Does anybody ever remember this passage being read out loud? It's just not. We don't deal with it. Commentaries and other places we go to get help from those who have come before us, um, they'll oftentimes just give up and say, this is just a strange passage. Um, fortunately, our forefathers, uh, going way back to the 1st and 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, and we have some of their writings, um, they tried to deal with it, and oftentimes they dealt with it in three different ways. Um, many of the translations that we have say sons of God. The one that we have in the booklet and that June read for us is divine beings, but I'm more familiar with sons of God, some of the <coughs> sons of gods, plural. And so they deal with these sons of gods in three different ways, or three different possibilities about who could be these people, these sons of gods. Who could be these human women that they're talking about? The first is the sons of gods possibly could be the human offspring of Seth. Seth was the son that Adam and Eve had um, following their ordeal with Cain and Abel. Later on they had Seth. And so some of these forefathers say, well, Seth was the good guy and, and uh, sons of gods, maybe not in a literal way, like he wasn't divine, but just really, they're the good guys in this story. And then the women here of the flesh in that scenario were daughters of Cain. So remember when Cain killed Abel, now God didn't deal with him by putting him to death. God sent him on his way. And so Cain still had, uh, had offspring. And so some of the forefathers say, well, that's what this is, potentially. Nobody ever says for sure. And so that has some Possibilities. It also has some, like, not possibilities too. Say, well, that's probably not it. But it's something to consider. The second 
theory is that the sons of gods were royalty. And so literal sons of kings and princes. And so they had a royal bloodline. And the daughters of the flesh were commoners, like you and I, commoners. And so when they mixed, uh, we had these issues. And that has some cultural implications from you know, from back then and, and some possibilities because of um, the way royalty was viewed. It wasn't uncommon to uh, view royalty as at least partially divine. And certainly even in our Old Testament scriptures, we hear uh, David, that the boys mentioned, uh, talked about um, in terms of being a, a son of God, uh, in terms of that. And so you can see where you can twist that and say, well, maybe... Royalty has at least a special connection with God, God and not, you know, half divine. Um, and so that has some possibilities. And you can see where their offspring would be viewed as heroes or warriors or be at least famous. And then the third possibility, and probably the most accepted, believe it or not, is the weirdest one of all. And that is just take it for what it's worth. And so you read this scripture, and you just receive it as it is, and that uh, that these sons of gods were heavenly beings. And it says that in black and white, that they were heavenly beings. And so what the forefathers said was that these were actually fallen angels. And so angels in heaven, uh, we're going to be talking about angels in December in that series, and so we'll save some of that for then. Uh, but angels being the messengers of God throughout our scriptures uh, were uh, up in heaven, and that the sinfulness, the people like Joe down on earth, the humans on earth, uh, they made sin look so good and so attractive that, hey, we want to get a piece of that sin, and so let's go down. And so some of the angels um, went down to earth and they did the things that uh, the scripture tells us they did with the human women. And so fallen angels. And that makes sense to us and it's widely accepted because we hear more about fallen angels before and after that passage. Who's the most famous fallen angel? Go ahead, Elizabeth. She raised her hand. Satan, that's right. All right. And so Satan was, or you know, that, the fallen Lucifer was the leader of worship in heaven and, and has a falling out because he thought he was God, basically, and becomes a fallen angel. And so we're familiar with that kind of theory. And so that becomes one of the most famous and most widely accepted issues with this passage. And we say, yeah, it's actual fallen angels. It also helps us to remember that the way God creates and God created this special class of uh, being called angels to be messengers, but even the messengers have free will. Nobody's forced to do anything. You and I have the capability to make our own decisions, even the angels. Um, didn't have to stay in the heavenly court. They could turn their back on God, and they're the ones that become fallen angels. And in this passage, they mate with human women and um, produce these Nephilim. Nephilim is a word uh, that was translated in our um, reading today as giants. It's a difficult word to translate. Uh, oftentimes it gets translated as giants. The giants in this passage end up really uh, not being the issue. Uh, 
Uh, in fact, it says these were viewed as heroes and were often warriors and famous. And so we don't really know much about these particular giants. We know about Goliath, and we get word of giants later on in the scriptures as well. And so that's a little bit weird, um, but we can move on from there. The other part of this scripture that is strange to us is in the middle of all this, we have this verse that says, um, the Lord says, my spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. And so in the midst of this weird, strange, creepy passage, we have a new mandate all of a sudden. And God seems to be, in the context here, disappointed in the behavior of folks on earth, and he limits it to 120 years. The problem with that is, going forward, we have some folks that live more than 120 years. Like who? Just give me one. Yes, I, I heard a couple different things, but... Yeah, so we have we have people that are living past 120 years. So then that makes us think, well, what exactly is going on here? What is meant by this? And there was discussion, and there's different ways that you can view that as well. Uh, but definitely there's going to be a restricted amount of time going forward um, that God's going to give to people um, on this earth. So a weird and strange and creepy passage. And it'd be fun if we could take some time and we could debate those three different views. Um, and there could, you could come up with a fourth view. Um, and we could have discussions around a table about that. But eventually what that's going to do is just probably confuse us even more. And quite frankly, it'd be a fun exercise. But it probably could uh, waste our time a little bit because we're never going to know the answer <laughs> until we get to heaven. And we say, hey, what's up with chapter six of Genesis? So here's what you can do with it. In fact, you should do this with every passage you read at home, or in a study, or wherever you are. I'm going to give you a way that you can deal with every passage in the Bible. And so even in a weird, creepy, strange passage like this, where you and I might not have the time or the ability to figure out exactly what this means, here's how we can get some value out of it. Because all Scripture is for God and all Scripture is valuable, even these strange, creepy, weird ones. I mean, you want to ask yourself three questions. The first one is, and it's helpful in this one, what does this passage, and you can even say, what is this weird, creepy, strange about God? And so you read the Scripture, receive it as it is, and you forget about what everybody else has ever said about the Scripture. You pray that the Holy Spirit is making this Scripture become alive for you, and then you say, what does this Scripture say about God? Anybody want to take a crack of that? What does it say about God? Just right off the top of your head. Anybody? Yeah, absolutely. Alright? God has some human feelings, especially if we read further get the gold star, by the way. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry. He regretted that he had created these humans on earth, and it grieved him 
to his heart. It grieved him. God grieved. And so what this passage tells us about God is God has human feelings. And in fact, we who are created in God's image, we all have feelings. We all grieve. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you have feelings about your children and grandchildren. If you're an aunt or an uncle, you have feelings about your nieces and nephews. If you're a sister or brother, you have feelings, especially when you're disappointed. And God does too. It's also an opportunity to think about God in a very different way. What do we always hear about God of the Old Testament? God is a what kind of God? About the Old Testament. Yeah, jealous, vengeful. I'm not saying this is what you believe, but we hear this. God of wrath, right? God in the the Old Testament is of wrath, and God of the New Testament is of love. That's wrong. Wrong. Next time somebody tells you that or says that on TV, scream at them and say, wrong, wrong, wrong. No, no, no. God is graceful. God is loving all the way through the Bible. God has high expectations for behavior all throughout the Bible. God is the same in that kind of nature all the way through. God wants us and wants the people of the Scriptures to be in relationship with Him all the way through. And when that happens, God's happy. And when it doesn't happen, God's disappointed. But God's always loving and graceful and trying to figure out a way. God is a parent here in this passage. God is a disappointed parent in this passage. It also tells us about God, that God, again, the free will. We have free will to make it, and and God allows us to exercise that free will. What else do we always hear? Sometimes we see this in Scripture, in terms of a certain way words are put together. It makes us think that God is this way, and God is not. But one thing that we hear about God from our friends and neighbors is that God never what? Never, well, never sleeps, yeah, possibly. (laughs) God never changes, right? You heard that. God never changes. God's always the same. The scripture will say God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, whatever. So we hear that sometimes in the scripture, but but we take that too far and say God never changes his mind. Baloney. So the next time somebody tells you that, say, baloney. Of course God changes his mind. It only took five chapters in the Bible. That's this little part. Five chapters in the Bible for God to change his mind on, he's like, I regret, I don't even, I regret, you know, sometimes when we look at our kids at home, except for Asher, I never regret having him. <laughs> he's not here today. If he wasn't here, I would we regret all of them at home. Just kidding. Sometimes as a parent, you know, you say, oh, goodness, God. You know, the seventh one on the way, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Children are a blessing, but blessings are sometimes complicated. Anyway, God changes his mind. He says, I regret it. I regret it. And then he changes his mind about the 120 days before this passage. One thing is for sure, we do know that some people live more than 120 years later. Uh, but before this passage, I mean, people were living like 900 years, right? And so there's a change. God changed his mind. He says it's not going to be indefinite or 900 years anymore. There's going to be some limits. So God changes. And we learned that from this passage. 
Boom, and you can do that all day. And you can figure out what this passage says about God. And that's a great place to start, and that's where we should start. Secondly, what does this passage say about human nature? What does it say about human nature? So just humans in general. So again, Job. What's it say about Job? Sinful. That's right. Sinful. We make mistakes. We're easily tempted. We're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We messed up. And, and not just Joe. We all. We all mess up. We've all been given the ability. The ability to sin. The inclination to sin has been passed down to us. Uh, because we're in the family tree of the original sinners, Adam and Eve. Alright? We are not on the hook for Adam and Eve's sin. So we're not being punished by God because of Adam and Eve. We're being punished by God for our own sin. Alright? It's a clear, it's a distinct difference there. Alright? Do I need to say that again? Sometimes I'm humble. We are on the hook for our own sin. We get that ability to sin passed down to us. We're not being punished for that original sin of Adam and Eve. We're being punished for our own sin. We have to work it out with God for our own mistakes and our own sin. So we learn from this passage that it only takes five chapters for us as humans to be so, so awful that God regrets it. And so that's one of the things we learn about human nature here. Now going back to what it says about God, the fun part is the rest of the Bible you know, all the rest of the Bible, which we have most of the Bible yet to go, God is trying to figure it out for us. God's extending us grace. He's trying to give us new and new and new and new ways until finally he sends Jesus to Christ to deal with our sin. And so God's grace gets in full gear, you know, right after this flood. God's grace is evident in the flood because he saves Noah and others to get a restart, a reboot. I think that was Carol's um, word. Zabolski, she, she said reboot. The flood's like a reboot. So anyway, so that human nature. Third and finally, maybe maybe even most important, after you look at the passage about what to say about God, what to say about human nature, the third is what does this passage say about you? What's this passage say about me? What's it reveal about me? And so you're reading this weird, creepy, strange <coughs> passage. And if you can get to that third question, what? how does this speak to me? What does it reveal about myself? If this is passage is the mirror, what do I see? And a lot of times it's going to be close to the same answer as number two, a human nature. Because we all live in to human nature. I won't ask anybody to raise their hand and say, what but in this passage, you know, the sin is so clear and evident um, that that's probably where we plug ourselves in. And we say, this passage reveals about me that I fall short. And my actions, sometimes my inaction, not only are displeasing to God, I cheat or steal or hurt someone 
physically or emotionally, God grieves. If you think about your actions making God cry, or breaking God's heart, you're talking about a powerful moment for yourself, for me, if we think about that. What I just did, or just didn't do, not only do I have to ask for forgiveness and say a little prayer, but it actually potentially made God cry. Broke is because I acted like such a jerk to someone who I completely ignored someone in need that I had the ability to help. And if you and I can get to that part of our lives from this passage, then it is well worth reading this weird, creepy, strange chapter 6, the first few verses. And it's a powerful way to think about it here is to not get all caught up in the who are the sons of God and who are the nephew. Is it really possible for angels to have a relationship with a human and all that kinds of stuff? But what does it say about God and what does it say about me? What it says about me is that I can break God's heart. And that's a humbling reading of this passage. And I invite you to think of it in that way. And may God add his blessing to this passage. And may God add with it. And we go on our way. Amen? Amen. <coughs> we'll pause now and we'll see have an opportunity to recite the Apostles' Creed.